Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Second Timothy verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. This is the word of the Lord. I guess I'm going to just share a little bit about my personal journey here this morning for just a few minutes. Hopefully uh, I'll be done in 10 minutes or so and John will be have plenty of time. And if we go to 12.15 or 12.30, the world won't end. So, uh, Jason 
just said that uh, Elijah is glad to have Debbie here. I tried to ask him, but all he said to me was "Akuna Matata." <laughs> Apparently, he's not worried. But uh, <laughs> uh, see, whenever you're learning something, repeat it over and over. That's just this pretty simple trick. I do that all the time, and eventually, it'll stick in your brain. Behold, my servant, Isaiah 42, verse one. Hopefully, you turn there. Behold, my servant. Of course, Jesus. Uh, these were some of the first scriptures he read when he announced his public ministry in uh, his first synagogue speech after the temptation of the wilderness in Nazareth uh, his, before he went to Capernaum. And you can find this uh, in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, especially in Luke 4. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my servant in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and, and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will keep you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeons, from the, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So, uh, of course, Jesus applies these verses to himself. And really, they apply to everyone who's called of God. So... Um, I just want to talk a little bit about concept. You know, when the children of Israel were, uh, when God led them through the Jordan, uh, he made, of course, the waters of the Jordan stand up, which was, again, a metaphor for water baptism, because the generation that had been baptized in the sea, in the Red Sea, and and he had separated the waters and gone through, that generation had perished in the wilderness. And so now a whole new generation carrying uh, the covenants of God and the purposes of God, the people of God in the earth, the, the only hope of mankind, had to go through the waters of baptism themselves. And when they got to the other side, they were told that each tribe was to take one stone from the middle of the Jordan and to pile them up as a pillar of remembrance. And one of the thing, a key ingredients in your life... Uh, is you need to make pillars of remembrance for everything God does in your life. You know, I just happened to gaze out and see Simon there, and uh, I remember the first time Simon told me about how he came to Christ. And it was clear he, in his heart and mind, he had a pillar of remembrance of what God had done to intervene in his life that day street preacher and uh, he had heard a guy preaching the gospel and he'd heard it for years but then that day Christ became real to him and uh, so uh, I was just thinking back that you know in in 1974 42 years ago about this time of year God really began to call me uh, 
to be a light to the nations, to, to, to develop a skill in knowing him and a skill at opening blind eyes. And that's really what we do as Christians. Our goal is to have God open our eyes. And, you know, a church is supposed to have many shepherds. Like a church, we've, we've really messed up with this whole professional clergy laity thing in our day because God's called you to be a shepherd of his sheep. And um, I always say that, you know, in a church of 100 people, there ought to be at least 15 to 18 qualified shepherds with about 15 to 18 that are well on their way in training to being qualified shepherds. Because we are to shepherd one another. We are our brother's keepers. And one of the keys to what a shepherd really is, is someone who's had all the same problems you've had, all the same struggles, all the same wrong motivations, all the same wrong attitudes, all the same wrong temptations and sins. However, they have found grace in God to uh, have significant portion, uh, victory in these areas, and they took notes on the way. They have stones, piles of stones of remembrance. So I thought I'd be a little self-indulgent because I'm going to praise two people today. Uh, you know, God really called me to, to do that in, in 1974. And I made a rule with myself in, in college that I wouldn't allow myself to get anything less than a B. And then I gradually raised that to getting more A's than B's. And then I finally, by the time I was, a, it takes a while to grow in disciplines and study habits. And so by my senior year, I set a goal to have all A's. But originally, I just set out to never get a C again, which I, by the grace of God, achieved. And uh, then I kind of upped it to half A's, half B's, then three A's for every B. And then finally, I just said, well, this last four quarters, I'm going to go for all A's. I still got two B's out of 16 classes. But um, during that time, I just said, I'm not going to allow myself to do my secular university homework until I've spent three hours in the scriptures each day. Because I knew what God had called me to. Now, I was always in a Christian community, and I was always being discipled by guys who were more mature than me and wiser. But in 1981, God began to give me a partner in that endeavor. And I know a lot of guys say this, but they're wrong, that their wife is the finest Christian woman they've ever known. Your wife's probably the second finest. But, uh, <laughs> you know, not only uh, did I love how powerfully Catherine prophesied and that she had a master's degree in economics and that uh, it only took a year of my discipling her before she began to be very affected at, at discipling other young ladies. And when we went, started going out door to door sharing the gospel, she regularly led more people to Christ uh, than I did. And uh, she knew biblical studies, theology, church history, biblical economics, all these kinds of things. And she was somehow deceived enough that she loved my messages, and, uh, which I knew something was wrong there. But, uh, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, I realized that God had given me that helpmate corresponding to him. That's what Adam didn't have. He didn't have a helpmate who corresponded to him. That's what it, it means in the Hebrew. And when God brought Eve to Adam, 
uh, he said, Zazazut, that's it. Because God hasn't actually, you know, like we've made romance and romantic love and gushy feelings the foundations of marriage in our culture. But the foundation of marriage is, is this person going to take you further in Christ? Are they going to be supportive, encouraging, challenging when needs to be? Are they going to pay the prices that you that you you're required that God requires you to pay, or are they always going to be complaining about, you know, how much money the kingdom costs and how much time it, it takes to invest in people? And what I've loved most about my wife is just that she's been willing to pay any cost and any price and do anything that it took. When we first came to Dayton, we actually. Uh, had made that she had already agreed to teach at Finley University for another year when we finally made the decision to move to Dayton and we felt we had to honor that commitment so she was willing to drive down here every Friday night spend the weekend with me and leave to go back to Bowling Green every morning every Monday morning and yet she would come on Friday nights directly into a meeting before we got to say hello she we you, and we wouldn't even get to sit. To, we would just worship. And then after the meeting, I'd be casting demons out of somebody or praying for someone to get baptized in the Spirit while she'd go take someone else up to the living room and lead them to Christ. And we didn't get to actually talk until Saturday uh, because that was what the ministry required. So... On June 12th, Saturday morning, 1982, uh, I woke up very, very early, 5 a.m. or something like that, and it was a day very similar to today. Nice temperature, sunny, great day. And, uh, you know, I had planned to sleep in a little bit because we were getting married later that day, and God has other plans sometimes. Don't you hate that? Uh, so, Lord, it was, it was one of those times where you wake up and you know it wasn't just that you woke up, but that God woke you up and he's got something he wants you to do. And I have only had, I don't know, maybe 25 experience in 42 years where there was such a strong presence of God that I knew God and I were about to have a meeting. <laughs> and uh, I better listen and take notes because I'm going to need to hold on to this. It's another thing that so many young Christians in our days, it seems, struggle with is God shows that you something in worship or in a time, a good message, and you lose it too quick. Because you don't understand that every word of God will be tested as silver refined. The, whenever God speaks to you, the next few years you're going to be a bat, in a battle to hang on to that. So... I've just had the impression that God wanted me to uh, take take a walk. By the way, it's okay to be a little self-indulgent as long as you've got good things that you're, that, that you're imparting in what you're teaching. wish I had a portable light. It's hard to talk without walking around. Anyway, uh, so I went for a walk. And the Lord called me again. Uh, just as really real as he had eight years earlier, 
when he called me to become a scholar of his word, to become an expert at, at opening people, blind eyes, at leading people to Christ, at casting people's demons out, at, at helping them get baptized in the spirit, at helping them see why they need real Christian community. And uh, I, he just prepared me for the fact that I was about to become a lousy husband. And that I really didn't have the depth of love of Christ and the depth of character to do what Paul says, husbands love your wife sacrificially as Christ loved the church. And God just kind of opened my eyes to what a great treasure Catherine is. And again, I'm not trying to argue with anybody, but even you know Ray Nethery, Ned Berube, Lou Callagher, all, all these guys that I've known, some of whom I've known for more than 40 years, always say to me, Greg, wow, you have this amazing Christian wife who's just willing to do whatever it takes uh, to see the kingdom come. And she never complains, and she never tries to say, why can't we pay less price, or why does it have to be so hard, or why do we have to do this, or, you, you know, why would we, you know, and so forth. And uh, so I, I felt like God challenged me to learn how to appreciate her, serve her, and value her, and that I was frankly too immature, too narcissistic, and too selfish to do that. And I actually want to kind of give us a little bit of a life lesson here because it took uh, nine years to 15 years before I began to even, I always held on to that and I always knew that I fell short of it. But listen to me, you know, on the TV preachers, they go, you're not hearing me. (laughs) You don't really get what I'm saying. You don't really get what I'm saying. Like I knew what God was showing me but I didn't know what God was showing me. I didn't know how much I didn't know it. Does that make sense? I mean, I knew that I saw it from a distance, the kind of man I would have to become to become a good husband, and why I was given a wife that was so worthy of that. And I knew I fell short, but I didn't know the degrees of any of that. And it was really about uh, from the ninth year of marriage to the 15th year of marriage, so I'm trying to give some of our young people perspective to hold on to what God has shown you, that God really began to break me down and reconstruct me and show me that what a fool and how selfish and how narcissistic and that marriage is where the rubber hits the road It's where the cross becomes real. It's where the character of Christ can be formed in a crucible so that you can become the person God wants you to be. And one of the great mistakes of our culture, if you go back and study church history, you'll find guys like John Wesley who never, he and his wife wrote one or two letters a year. They never spoke. They hated each other. And church history is filled with such great uh, people as that. And that's why, like, we see the church as a family of families. If we're considering someone for shepherding or teaching or any position, the first thing we want to find out is how good a husband are they? 
How good of a father are they? And I could care less about any, you know, how much you know or whatever or how gifted you are if you don't have that first. So I really thank my wife because between years 9 and 15, she really had to exercise a lot of forgiveness and a lot of patience and a lot of letting God break me down and rebuild me into a great husband and a great father. And so I thought I'd start by sharing that and just saying... Catherine and I read a lot of biographies. And I just read a biography of Teresa of Avila yesterday. I read a biography of Mother Teresa yesterday. I've read a lot of biographies. And uh, you really are the finest Christian woman I know. Uh, that's part one. Sorry, John. So uh, back in the 80s, uh, we had the kind of church and the kind of culture that you wore, like ministers wore ties and coats to church. So there's this store called Gentry's that's near the Fairfield Commons down in, uh, I don't know, northwest suburb of Cincinnati, Fairfield, I think it's called. And uh, it was, it's worth the drive <laughs> for suits and so forth. So we had just bought a couple new suits, Catherine and I, and she was nine months pregnant with John and they have the store set up where you go buy your suits on the one side of the store then you walk through the door and they, then you match up all your shirts with your ties so we were in the checkout line buying a bunch of shirts and a bunch of ties and suddenly Catherine became very disinterested and I said, well, you know, we're trying to get this paid for. We got it. What's going on? She goes, I think I'm in labor. And I said, in Cincinnati? Okay. <laughs> I can drive pretty fast. But uh, so uh, later that night, John Paul Weiss was born. I was raised by my big brother more than my father. And so from the age of five, I wanted a son. And God first granted me that request by having a little brother named John Paul Weiss. And during his short lifetime, even my demonic hard ass, excuse my language, drug dealing, uh, always in trouble with the law, kinds of best friends, said, Weiss, I, I'd do anything to have a relationship with my brother like you have with your little brother. He was the closest person in the world to me. So on August 18th, well, we won't go into that because it's too long. On August 19th when he died, uh, it was really the last step in my coming radically to Christ. And that's a longer story than I want to get into today and that John wants me to get into. But um, 
I decided right then and there that I'll see him again in 70 to 75 years and that that's just a drop in the bucket of eternity. And so I needed to just go all out for God and make sure this quick life that I was already 17, I was already having a middle-aged crisis, uh, that you know I realized I was running out of time to be fruitful for God that, that, that week. And I always felt that someday God would give me a son named John Paul who hopefully would, uh, you know, be a fulfillment of everything I prayed for because I prayed to have a little brother. And um, maybe you can put that Second Timothy, the first slide of it back up, please. Um, you know, the Greek says, uh, technon, to Timothy, my beloved child is really my beloved son. Of course, they can't have gender, they have to be gender neutral nowadays. Uh, but uh, the Greek really is my beloved son. And I just want to say, like, every man loves his son. And everyone would say, my son's the greatest. But to have a son who really gets it about God, who passes you in many areas. Uh, I often think of Jason as having passed me in uh, what it means to be a good husband and in many other character issues and other things. And John has passed me in those areas in some ways as well. But John's really passed me an understanding of God, the scriptures, biblical studies, and theology to the point where he's become my counselor. And have a son like that uh, is beyond my wildest dreams. <laughs> to have a guy that I, that I can call for advice, who, un, who I can say I'm having trouble understanding this thing about uh, theology or scriptural history and so forth, and he can help me open my eyes and will even email me links to articles and can help me find my way. Uh, I've always had this friend named Lou Callagher, who's a great theologian-oriented kind of pastor and has helped me find my way. But he's been replaced in my life by John these last few, quite a few years. And John, I just want to say uh, your, you know, your love for your wife, your love for the Word of God, your love for me, for your mom, for what we're doing here at Grace Christian Fellowship, you're passing up so many other opportunities. You know, John, John serves on the board of the Alliance for Renewal Churches. He serves on the board of Dominion Academy. Uh, he's, uh, he meets on our behalf with a bunch of pastors in the Dayton area to represent our church because he's a, a kid filled with wisdom that you would expect in someone 55 to 70. In fact, on a lot of these boards, he's the only guy under 40. And he's, you know, he'll be 28 tomorrow. And he's been like this for five or six, seven, eight years now. And uh, one of the things before, as he gets into his message today, is we are in a time of the church calendar called ordinary time, right? And and of course, in Advent and Lent and Easter and Pentecost and so forth, we follow 
uh, the life of Christ and the life of the early church and reteach the main events every year. In ordinary time, we teach the whole scriptures about anything that God is putting an emphasis on. And I'm really happy to tell you that Jason and Carla and John and Emily have so much knowledge and wisdom and character and spirit of what it takes to have a great marriage, to raise kids, and they totally get the, the, the enemies of marriage, the enemies of children. We are in an anti-children age. We murder one-third of every child conceived. Almost no Christian parents don't have a bevy of wrong ideas about how to raise their kids in their head. And uh, to have a son that I can honestly say, listen to him. You know, God the Father spoke over God the Son, said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And as he comes today, I don't care if he goes a half hour over, but I do care that you listen to him. You need what he's, go back to his title, would you? Um, You know, you need to learn what it means to worship as a family, what it means to be a husband, what it means to be a wife, uh, what it means to be a father, a mother. And um, I'm probably going to teach on Father's Day next week, maybe. Uh, If not, John's going to. (laughs) Because um, I am fully confident, you know, like one of the things that I uh, am very gifted at is administration. And a lot of people would say, you're not gifted in administration. You don't like to do this, that, or the other thing. The real gift in administration is always to know who is good at it and, and put the right person in it. And uh, one of the things I can tell you is that John is the right person to teach us about marriage and family raising and why you need a, your kids to go to Christian schools and why you need to be the primary educator of your children, not the school, even if they go to the finest Christian school, uh, that you need to raise them up in the ways of God and teach them. And I pray that uh, you'll, that uh, as John comes, I'd actually like to ask Catherine to stand up, and John's already standing, but I, I kind of want you to join with me in just giving them a hand. So today is going to be a deeply practical examination of a topic that we spoke on last week and now are examining in detail how to walk it out, specifically called family worship. Now, just to be clear, we're not worshiping the family, just to get that out of the way first. This is not an exaltation of the family to be something that it is not. It rather is a putting right of that which God has intended, family, Christian family specifically, to be for. The purpose for which Christian families exist is the, glory, the glorification of God. Christian families do not exist for the sole benefit and purpose, uh, joying, uh, enjoyment or, or uh, pleasure of the people in those families. This is consistent with the rest of Christian theology. We are not our own, as Paul says. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, we glorify God with our bodies. And if we glorify God with our bodies, then indeed we should glorify him with all of our life. So today's readings include a mascal of Asaph, 
Uh, Maskell is simply a song of remembrance. It's a song that's reiterated, retelling a story and leading somewhere. Uh, and it's considered to be one of the greatest uh, psalms of a continuation or the baton passing. And we see this over and over again in the Old Covenant scriptures where one of the patriarchs or a king or a prophet gives a warning to the nation. And then in that warning, he gives a key idea which will cause the nation to persevere in the faith. So today we're going to look at David's mention of this. He actually establishes the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 6 as we looked last week. If you were here with us, you may remember that we examined the responsibility of fathers to raise up their children according to the things of God. That is the counsel of God, remembering the deeds of God, speaking the very word of God. And we saw that God's command was explicit and clear, that the father was to, for his son and his daughter, discuss the things of God when they rise up, when they sit down, when they go out, when they come back in, when they walk by the way. Essentially, God in Deuteronomy 6, as we saw last week, is commanding fathers and to some degree mothers, but especially fathers. In no way are we diminishing the role of mothers, but rather that the fathers will pay a specific uh, responsibility to God at the judgment seat for how they are uh, upholding or failing to uphold the faith in their children. So we see in today's reading a maskal of Asaph, a recording of what David is doing uh, in, in blessing the people of Israel as he's about to depart from the kingdom. And in that, I want to tie that to Paul's engagement with Timothy in the second epistle. And we're going to see that it's important that it was the second epistle, not simply the first. And I think it's, it's important to see this because as, as believers, we, we sometimes are deceived into thinking, well, I've kind of reached a launching point and now I'm going to be this autonomous individual. And Paul here is writing a letter to someone who has been running the church at Ephesus. And if you are a student of the New Testament, you know that Ephesus is one of the most mature churches. In the book of Ephesians, it does not have any rebuke. All the other epistles, except for Ephesians, have significant doctrinal rebukes and errors that need to be amended. And Timothy is one who has received a spiritual fathering from this apostolic missionary named Paul, who invested into this young man and then installed him as an elder in the church and then gave him the authority and permission and command to install other elders. And so we see a multi-generation multi-generational transmission of the faith even within the first century, even indeed within the first few decades after the Lord's ascension. Paul is installing Timothy, giving Timothy authority and commanding him specifically to install those who will be faithful and teach these doctrines to not only their natural children, that's included in primary, but also their spiritual children. If you have any doubt that this is God's intention, look at the qualifications of an elder that Paul gives to Timothy. It makes no sense that Paul would tell Timothy that the elder must have a right rule over his own household unless that was part of the faith. If his children are renouncing the faith, running from the faith, if they all completely together reject and renounce and apostatize, then that is saying something about the qualifications for this person as an elder. And that's, one of the, that's probably the qualification which we hate the most in our day. We also probably hate the 
qualification that he must be a man, but that's a discussion for another day. So today I want to give you two biblical applications of Deuteronomy 6, how they are worked out again in the life of Israel and in the life of the early church. They're re-put uh, in force or they're republicized. They're re the, there is a republication of this doctrine and command from Yahweh to educate their sons and their daughters. And then from there, I want to give you some deeply practical applications. I'm, gonna, I'm going to give you things that probably you won't be able to memorize, and it probably would be best if you took notes, especially if you're wanting to do these things, which I hope by the end of today you are. So we're going to get into Psalm 78. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. The verses will also be on the slide. I want to look at God's intention in family worship. He has a goal in family worship, and we're going to define that term in a few minutes. I want to look at Paul's fathering of Timothy, and then finally just some introductory steps. By no means is this supposed to be the one shot that you get at learning how to do family worship. And indeed, through your practice with your families, I believe that you'll come to appreciate this in a deeply meaningful way. Let me just say something at the onset as well. I said this last week, and I want to reiterate it today. If you are single or unmarried or divorced, or you believe that your spouse is not a, really a believer, and you're, or you're, you know, if you're the wife or the husband and your spouse is not fully on board, in no way does that diminish your responsibility to do these things. As likewise, with, with people who are empty nesters, if you did not do these things, do not despair. Fly at once to the mercy seat of God and petition him to pronounce his love and benediction on your family, even though you did not do these things which God commands. This is a word of grace from the Lord. It is not a word of condemnation. Nevertheless, seek to, through repentance, amend bad examples and put right your future examples. This is something that should be received. If you are single, this deeply impacts you. Young ladies, do not marry, don't even date someone who isn't willing to have this idea explored and committed to for your future uh, relationship. And, and really, if you're a, a young man and you are hoping one day to be married, become the type of person that is able to explain the scriptures because that is your call and indeed even your charge from God himself. He has invested a great deal of authority and responsibility in you and you will give an account for how you respond. I've been listening to a number of sermons on this topic, specifically family worship, for years now, and one of my favorites is by a guy by the name of Joel Beakey, and he's speaking at the Desiring God Conference in 2011. And if you don't know, the Desiring God Conference is simply, um, it's a conference up in Minnesota. It's put on by the, uh, the Desiring God organization, which is the ministry arm of John Piper. And in that conference, Joel Beakey was invited to speak as the primary speaker. And he told this story of how Charles Spurgeon, the great theologian and pastor and preacher, said that when he was young, his mother would often pray within his earshot something to this effect, Lord, I know that if Charles does not give heed to these prayers, that they will rise and condemn him at the judgment. And Charles Spurgeon said, it, it sent terror into my heart, but God used it. So I would encourage you that not only do, do the prayers of your parents matter and stand against you at the judgment, but also your responsibility before God. You will give an account for these things. 
Now, those who put their faith and trust in Christ give an account in grace, and they give an account fully received, but nevertheless, it, it would be a terrible thing for you to come to the end of your days and realize you have wasted your family, and you have thrown away a treasured inheritance. It is so important to put these things right, even as single people or people who are young in their marriages or with young children or even with old children. It is never too late to seek to amend your example and your walk by the grace of God. Of course, not in the flesh, but doing everything aided by the Spirit. So, let's get into it. This is a mascal of Asaph, and that simply means a song of remembrance. It's received by most commentators to be written by Asaph, and he is narrating or remembering the things that David was announcing to the people as David was uh, handing over the reins to Solomon. You can look this look at this in the beginning of First Kings. There's a little bit of a um, a debate with with. I believe his name is Adonijah. He installs himself as king. And there's this whole event that takes place. And David gives an address to King Solomon as he's installing Solomon as king. But he doesn't give an address given to the nation at that point in the record of the text. Nevertheless, it's understood by most commentators that that has actually been put here in the book of Psalms. And so David does have a departing address to the people of Israel, and most commentators understand that Asaph is the one who is recording that address. At some point, it changes from King David giving a description to Asaph himself taking up that very same um, charge. David being a prophet of the Lord is speaking in this passage as a representative of Christ. Christ actually utters these very words, Psalm 78 verse 2 and 3, concerning his speaking in parables that he gives to the nation. And David here is reminding the people of God what they have received from their fathers, specifically their fathers as they transmitted not just material possessions, but spiritual blessings and a heritage That is an identity, a knowledge of who they are as the people of God. He commands the people to listen, and in doing that, he remembers how they receive the faith. He says, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Does this not sound exactly like Solomon's wisdom in Proverbs, where he says to his son, give ear to my instruction, son, and and scorn not the instruction of your mother? Verse 2, I will open my mouth in a parable, I will utter dark sayings of old. Who wants some dark sayings? I love that phrase. Because it it connotes this mystery that is, these things are not plainly evident to the natural mind. These things are hidden in the mysteries of God. God conceals these things from those who do not wish to peer into them through responsibility and obedience of faith. Verse three, things that we have heard and known so this is, this is something that was common to them as Israelites. These are not things that were strange to them. And look at what a faithful king, King David, for the most part, although he sins deeply in murdering Uriah and stealing his wife named Bathsheba, nevertheless, God brings about a good end from it, calling Solomon to be a king. And David, remembering these things, says that these were the things that our fathers have told us. If there is any indication of where our culture is going, a deeply troubling sign is the breakdown of families, black, white, whatever. It doesn't matter what demographic, race, socioeconomic status, there's a deep loss of fatherhood in our time. And I'm convinced 
that if it is not amended, it will be to the downfall of the church and then therefore to the downfall of Western society, even as it is already deficient today. So he says, these are things that our fathers have told us. And then he begins to call to mind and from that place command. He calls them to remember what they have received, to put it into force to today. And seeing that it is right and fitting to obey God's promises to the national obedience, he then reiterates and re-invokes or puts into force again exactly what has happened. Verse four, he then says, we will not hide. This is a promise of national obedience. It is right for you upon hearing the command of God to say, we will do this, but not in such a way as to condemn and testify against yourself. We will do this in the grace of God. We will do this being aided by the Holy Spirit. It is a sign of unbelief and deep uh, disobedience to God to hear God's call and command and God's great promises and say, man, that just sounds too good to be true. Or I really hope God could give us a family that's mature and honoring to him. It is right for you as Christian men and women, mothers and fathers, singles, marrieds, whoever, to hear the promises of God, hear his command, and commit yourself to doing and obeying. David says, we will not hide them from their, ch- from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord. What is he talking about? He's talking about, in Deuteronomy 6, how God commanded the Israelites to remind their children, as we saw last week, that they were at once a slave in Egypt. And being in their fathers as slaves in Egypt, they were delivered through God's mighty outstretched arm, and they were brought into a wonderful land. He specifically names these as the wonders that he has done. In dispensing grace, God uses means. This is probably my most important point. This is the center point of this talk. God uses means. He does not simply just uh, come down from heaven and tap you on the shoulder and fill you with wisdom. That is not how God normally operates. I'm always a little bit suspicious when I hear Christians who are not willing to even share the gospel with their neighbor rejoice over and over again that God is showing up in dreams to the people who are currently in Islam. This is a common phenomenon that we hear celebrated, and I think possibly we celebrate it because we think it alleviates our responsibility. Have you ever heard one of these stories, you know, that that a person lives in the Middle East? First of all, it's hard to establish the veracity of such an account. But nevertheless, that's an indictment against the church. It's not a cause for celebration. I I hear the same thing when when someone says, well, you know, I watched this movie the other day, and they'll tell me it's something like Iron Man 3 or whatever. And God really spoke to me. And, you know, he used that move. And I just say to myself, well, it it took that for God to speak to you? Now, again, I'm not saying that you can't watch movies. And I'm not saying that God can't speak through narrative. And to some degree, all stories have to, in some way, either show the sin of man or subtly give glory to God. But nevertheless, if you are going around living your life in such a way as you are receiving the ben- most of the benefit of spiritual wisdom from things that are not the prescribed means of grace, then you are cheating yourself. God uses means, and those means are his word, his spirit, prayer, worship, Bible teaching, sharing and witnessing with 
unbelievers and being admonished and encouraged by believers. Those are the normal means of grace. The, the worship service, which is held weekly, is the chief means within that means, but those means of grace are necessary and they are required. In this passage, God hangs the future spiritual success of the next generation. He makes it dependent upon the faithfulness of this current generation in teaching their children. Look closely at this verse. Verse 5, he established a testimony in Jacob. How did he do that? He did wonders through, throughout the Exodus and then commanded them to write them down. And then uh, David continues, and he appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach their children. When David is saying he, commanded, he appointed a law, he's not talking about the specific provision for them to teach but rather he's speaking about the whole law. He appointed a law to Israel that their fathers would teach to their children. Verse six, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn. This is the purpose for which God established the law and indeed the main point of families, the main chief end of families, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. Here David is, is describing a multi-generational transmission of the covenant of God through the declaration that takes place in families. He doesn't say that Yahweh established a synagogue system and that all the people upon coming to hear the elders that Moses installed would then receive the covenant which they already were in, and then would begin to tell their children. God set this up as the normative way that the church would be sustained. And nevertheless, this is in the Old Covenant. The church does not begin in the New Testament, just so you're clear on that. The faithful community of God, which trusted in the promises of God, is the church. And so here, this is an instruction to the church. He's describing the purpose for which God created this law. God desires faithfulness throughout all generations. Can you imagine what God would be uh, saying about a church who continually loses those who are entrusted to her? Think about this. How can the church of God ever rise up and fulfill the great command and promise that God gave to Abraham that through Abraham's seed, namely Christ, and all those who would come through him, his offspring, if we continually lose each generation and have to re-evangelize our own children. J.C. Ryle, in describing uh, a great theologian and preacher in the Reformed tradition, in describing the, the plight of many theologians, my, my dad actually mentioned this concept, that many popular theologians and pastors were poor examples to their children. And he says, woe is us, who can bear the reproach of losing their own children after preaching to the masses? And so I'm convinced that this is deeply important. In fact, David himself says in these verses that this is God's pattern that the next generation would, would receive. By faithfully telling their children about God's mighty works, and here in parentheses I've put gospel because this is God's salvation that he brought to Israel, the Exodus, future generations will be preserved from apostasy. And by apostasy, I mean falling away from the truth that they were once given falling away from that truth so as to reject that God and not walk according to his ways. Verse seven, the purpose continuing to be explained so that they would set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Now, some of you may say, well, we know that Israel sinned over and over again. 
In fact, that's been one of my chief ideas that I weave into every teaching. And you might say, well, that clearly disproves God's promises. May it never be. It actually is a great indictment against Israel that their children didn't operate in faithfulness and continually strayed. That is putting this into force even greater. If the people of God who received the very oracles of God himself as mediated through messengers, if they turned away from the faith, if they renounced the covenant, then all the more we who have a greater covenant must attend to these things. Verse 8, that they shall not be like their fathers. Here he's speaking about the ones who fell away in the wilderness. That The reason God in Deuteronomy 6 established this was because their previous generation was not faithful to remember. They did not remember the mighty deeds of God. They grumbled in the wilderness and therefore they fell away. And because of that falling away, the next generation was mightily impeded. It, they were not able to be as victorious as they had, uh, should have been. He says of that generation, the one who fell away in the wilderness, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. This is what is at stake if you do not install these things as a, faith, as a, as a faith-filled, that is a responding in grace response to God's command and promises. This exact same pattern which David has just encouraged and admonished and promised national obedience in the people of Israel, this exact same pattern is reiterated in the New Testament. Again, I'm hoping to, throughout time, be able to work out of you the idea that something needs to be reinforced in the New Testament for it to apply. Nevertheless, the chief and most important doctrines are. Therefore, I think it's fitting for us to look at what happens through Paul's communication, his second epistle to Timothy of these things. Paul received a uh, adoption of Timothy, that is a spiritual adoption. Here in this way, it really doesn't matter. Even calling it spiritual adoption is not doing service. It wasn't as if Paul went to the Romans and then, you know, sought an adoption certificate. Uh, that idea would have been ridiculous even a few generations ago in our country. Nevertheless, it wasn't even an idea back then. Paul adopted Timothy. He found a disciple who did not have a believing father, who was of the age where he was most likely not, no longer living with his mother, although possibly, we were not given a lot of details. But Paul adopts Timothy, and the reason I think that he probably, his mother was not support, needing the support of Timothy is because Paul felt free to take him. With, with him on his missionary journeys. And Paul addresses this young man at the time that he has, has received him and then installed him into the office in the church. He addresses this young man as a beloved child. And this, this nature is one that is filial. It's, it's a f- affectionate. It's, it's affirming. It's, it's wonderful. It's not harsh. It's not overbearing. But at the same time, it does not shrink back from telling the truth. Paul addresses this young man, and then he begins to explain to him what Timothy has received. The whole point of 2 Timothy is that although Timothy has begun well, Paul is writing a letter to make sure that Timothy ends well. And he reminds Timothy at the onset of this book exactly what Timothy has received. And before that, he actually mentions his own faith. Verse 3, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors. 
with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Wait a second. I thought Paul persecuted the church and his ancestors were all Jewish. So how is he now as an apostle saying that his ancestors faithfully served Yahweh? Well, brothers and sisters, it is not the case that someone in the old covenant who was a faithful believer in Yahweh's promises needed to know the name Jesus Christ. As the book of Hebrews says, he spoke in various ways, but now he has spoken through his son. Paul himself says that the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people to repent and put their faith in Christ. Those who were faithful believers in the old covenant who trusted in the promise of the Messiah who was to come were faithful worshipers of Yahweh. Paul is not offering any Pharisaism here. He's saying that my ancestors were faithful who served God. Verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your uh, grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Look at that for, for a second. Paul is describing the faith which is in Timothy at that same faith as having dwelt in Lois and then having dwelt in Eunice, and then having dwelt in Timothy. We think that our faith is our own response to God. No, it's not. The faith that you have, the trust that you place in Christ, is a gift given to you by God. And in this case, it was given to Timothy through the very means of his faithful parents, namely, specifically his mom. Timothy had a Greek father who was not a believer. Here, here's a, a special, wonderful provision by God that he would honor Timothy's mothers so that those who do not have believing husbands would not despair. If you have experienced this, if you do not have a believing husband and you are concerned at all, look at this example. God is able to save to the uttermost of those who call upon him. He, he honors Timothy's grandmother and then mother, explaining that God is able to build up and restore and save. God's grace is powerful. Nevertheless, Paul then takes him under his wing and adopts him as a child. Paul identifies this faith, the faith that is in the Messiah, not the faith that you have, but rather the faith of Jesus Christ, that that same faith dwells in Lois, Eunice, and Timothy. This is faithful transmission of the covenant. Verse six, for this reason, as in what Paul is saying is because of all these things, because of all this history that I've just enumerated, because I serve God, because I've been made an apostle of our Lord, because I had a faith that I serve God with that my ancestors also had, and because of the faith which dwells in you, which also was in your mother and your grandmother, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which was entrusted to you. Paul is receiving Timothy as a young man, and he's calling Timothy to maturity, to fan into flame that which was glowing and authentic and true, but that which was clearly in danger of diminishing and, and dwindling. If you've ever been at a bonfire, you know that a fire eventually breaks down over time. The logs are consumed and the, it becomes just embers which are aglow. But before the embers die out, if you apply, oftentimes I use a piece of cardboard. Other people have these uh, little smoke devices which which cause air to flow, if you fan that, those embers, they become a roaring flame. Paul is admonishing Timothy to put into force 
or to reinvigorate the faith that he has received from his parents. And doing so, he is going to prove to be a faithful witness to God. Verse 7, for God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Because Timothy has grace multiplied to him, and by multiplied I mean each generation successfully passed down the faith to Timothy, because of this, Paul is saying that this is an even more important reason to put zeal at work in Timothy's heart and life. As in to say that this transmission of the faith, this thing which was given to Timothy as a gift, Timothy did not ask for this. Timothy simply was born into this family. Because of Timothy's reception, all the more he should treat it as a precious thing, a thing not to be despised. Paul essentially, although he does not use these words, is commanding Timothy to be like Jacob and not Esau, to not despise his birthright. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Paul is commanding Timothy to pay attention to the rich and precious deposit that he has received through his parents. It is valuable and precious. Verse 13 Therefore, he commands him saying, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. Fathers in this church, are your children hearing sound words? Or are they merely hearing the words of a television? Are they merely hearing your words of rebuke and punishment or discipline? But are they ever hearing sound words, words that are said as a father to a son? It is my belief that Paul had routine conversations on his journey. Although we don't see it from the text, it's very clear if you're going on a journey, especially at this time when it takes weeks and you have to live together as you're going on a boat across the Mediterranean to get to Asia Minor, uh, they had daily conversations. They had communion. They had fellowship. Paul treated Timothy with love. And these are the words that Paul says as he's writing this letter. Timothy is having all these moments come to his mind, remembering the great time and gift that, that Paul gave him. And he is hearing Paul say, all the more pay attention to these words. That is what Paul is calling Timothy to do. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Again, this faith is something that Timothy has received. It's not something that dwells in Timothy alone, as if Timothy's faith somehow applies something in God's redemption, but rather the faith that is in Christ Jesus, which Timothy has received by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Are you worthy of receiving a deposit? It's not up to you. You simply are born into a Christian family or you are not born. You receive the grace of God through a proclamation of the gospel or you don't receive it. Nevertheless, if you're hearing me today, you have received the grace of God. You have been called and therefore Paul's admonition to Timothy is all the more effective to you. Guard it. I would never burn or throw away actual money, but am I doing that with my heritage? Am I despising those things which have been entrusted to me? By the grace of God, may it never be so. Nevertheless, we hear 
in Deuteronomy 6, the command to teach our children, we see David as he is passing the baton to Solomon, invoke the nation to faithful covenant obedience. We see Paul's example to Timothy as a loving father, encouraging his son in the faith to put all the more zeal at work in his eldership and in his rulership of that church at Ephesus. And so the question is, what are we to do about this? If you're convinced, great. If you're unconvinced, I'll still pray for you. But at this point, I want to begin to talk about some of the ways that we can seek to honor the Lord. And these are very practical ways. If, if you're at all uh, thinking that this is something you should begin to do, and I pray that you are, I would encourage you to take some notes, jot down some ideas, or simply listen deeply with a desire to do it. I'm going to lay out some practicals of what family worship is and what it isn't. First of all, family worship is not a three-hour Bible study. The book of Ephesians, Paul commands, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. The chief way of provoking your children to wrath is through punishing instead of disciplining. That's a different story for a different day. But the other way is to beat them over the head with the Bible. There's a reason why the pharisaical quoting of the scripture, that, that kind of like overly strict disciplinarian, that, there's a reason why that's a caricature, right? The, the reason why is because it's easy to turn the Bible into something we kind of just beat our children over the head with. That is not what family worship is. Neither is family worship dead religion, which is just external formalism. We want to avoid a example which is too hard. We want to avoid an example or a pattern or a, a goal that is impossible or too what you might call legalistic or too high of a bar so that you could never actually do it as a family. And we also want to avoid something that is trivial and formalistic. That is to say that if the Spirit of God is calling you to do something this day, read a different passage than you chose or sing a different song than you chose, that you don't respond in Phariseeism. It is, it is right to, uh, to respond to the call of God in the moment. Nevertheless, it is not a flippant thing that can be casually dismissed or done away with. I'm going to describe a little bit of the tradition of family worship. This was an element of the church throughout all the centuries, but specifically being revived in the Dutch and German and Swiss Reformation, also the French to some degree, that took place in the 1500s to the 1700s, that approximate time frame in which the Reformation was really in full swing. And this is a practice and a pattern that the church has always emphasized, although at some times to a lesser degree than others. Except for today. I believe that today we have seen the exaltation of personal piety or per personal religious service and devotion to the complete and tragic neglect of family worship. That is, we have thousands of Bible in a year plans or Bible in a half a year plans or books to read for your own devotions that are written to moms and written to dads and written to children and writ written to you know Asian American Christians and black American Christians and whatever. We have so siloed each individual part of the family of God that we've completely neglected the family of God. And we've caused personal piety to be held on a pedestal while family piety to be completely ignored to the point of gross and utter terrible neglect. In fact, apart from being in this church, I have never heard 
apart from those messages I have sought out myself, I have never heard a command to engage in family worship or even a description of what it is. Again, I think that's an indictment on the church. Nevertheless, it is a great and wonderful thing that can be revived. It is not too far gone. It's my opinion that if we would see the revival of the church in our culture, and I pray that you are hoping for that and praying for that and working for that, if we would see that, if we desire that, then we ought to first bring about the revival in our own homes. You cannot be a Christian in the pulpit nor in the public square if you are not a Christian to your wife and to your children. We are seeking an approach, therefore, that's neither idealistic, that is impossible. We're not going to read the entire Westminster Shorter Catechism each time we come together. And we're not seeking an approach that's trivial. If you simply pray before your meal, God, thank you for this food, let's eat. If that is the extent of your family devotion, you are neglecting God's command for your children. You must put these things in front of your children and you must do it faith-filled. I'm gonna talk about that specifically at the end. What is the motivation for these things? Your faith has to and always is being worked out. You are living according to your principles. And it's my opinion that it is right to amend your principles when your belief and knowledge changes. Therefore, this is going to sound probably as if the most practical teaching you've ever heard me give, it is going to sound like homework. And indeed, most of life is homework. Family worship centers around three basic elements. Those three elements are reading in the word of God and to some degree reading other sources that explain or expound upon the word of God. The second thing is praying before the throne of God. We're not simply praying together. We're not praying to the air. We are going to the throne of God as a family. And the reason why that comes second is because if you put it at the end, kids will adopt that, they'll know, and they'll be anxious in the last few moments of prayer. And this is the reason why I think singing is, comes, comes at the end, is it is a singing unto the glory of God, and it's joyful, and most of the time, kids won't want to end the singing. Nevertheless, in saying kids, again, I'm not saying that single people can't be doing this, people who live together in Christian community can't be doing this, you should be doing this. So I want to talk a little bit about the manner of family worship. How are we to conduct ourselves in family worship in our homes? First of all, when engaging in these activities, whether it be reading, praying, or singing, you should do so with a joyful solemnity. What what do I mean by a joyful solemnity? I mean you should be happy in your manner and disposition. You should be joyful. You shouldn't be overbearing and harsh. You can't be yelling at your kids through the family worship. Well, we did family worship today, but each of them were spanked at every turn. That is not ideal. Now, you do need to discipline, but hopefully you can get things straightened out. It's, you're the adult. Uh, be reverent and sol- solemnly joyful or joyful solemnity. It, it means to have a love for God being displayed in character, word, and tone, but at the same time, you are treating this as reverent and holy. This is something that we have still a great deal to do in our church is to restore the sacredness of worship. We treat worship as a flippant thing in our culture and we need to amend that. Done rightly, family worship ought to reflect the attributes of God. There ought to be a sense of God's holiness, God's love, God's mercy, God's grace, and God's justice. He does not ignore sin, but he loves those who come to trust in him. 
You must be affectionate in tone and loving in speech. Again, if you are only speaking in a way that is harsh during these times in which you are claiming to know the God who is love, as 1 John says, you do not love that God. How can you love God who is unseen if you do not love your brother who is seen? And by brother, that means those who are also Christians, including your children. You ought to lovingly display the heart of a father in family worship. You cannot be overbearing. And if you are overbearing, what you are actually doing is although you're seeking to you know, control the scenario or environment, you're actually driving your children further away from the faith. You're lying about who God is as a father. So attention should be required. What do I mean by that? I mean if, if the kids or the adults, if anyone is kind of running around and fidgeting and playing on their phone and things like this, you, you need to require attention, but you need to do it in a loving way by encouraging them, son, daughter, we're, we're speaking about God. These are holy things. We're attending to the worship of God. We, we aren't going to go answer the phone. We're not going to play on our phone. We're going to worship God as a family. This is a family activity and attention is required. Amen. That trains your children how to do well in school, but that's a side benefit. Uh, all, of, all of the side benefits of family worship are right and good, and, and you might even love family worship for that, but those aren't the chief desires that you should have in your heart. Okay, so reading. You should read a short portion from the Old and New Testaments. Why should you read from both? Because your children, especially if they are uh, going to be in your care for any length of time, need the whole counsel of God. They need the whole counsel of God, and the whole counsel of God is found in the whole word of, of God. That is the scriptures, totally. You should explain the meaning as needed. And this is why Christian fathers ought to know the word of God as well. You have to be able to explain them. Now, if you don't understand, don't make something up. <laughs> Admit that you don't understand and then say, well, let's talk about it and reason with your child. Even if you do know, that's an appropriate thing to do, to reason with your child uh, or children and wife or uh, you know, whoever is in your household. If someone lives with you and is not a d direct descendant of you, they're welcome and should attend your family worship. Nevertheless, children who can read should be given a Bible and children who can't read, you should pretend as if they can because they will gain more than you think that is possible. Now, I, I'm not preaching myself, but I just want to share a very quick moment of my morning today. Little tiny Susan was perfectly lying in her bed, and she was blissfully happy and not fussing at all, but she still wanted a pacifier. And so I put the pacifier in her mouth, and then all of a sudden I saw her start to take her hand and hold it up to her mouth. Now, I don't know a lot about child development, but I think that's impossible for a, for a one-month-old. I have learned that, they, that she is more capable than I had thought. That will be true throughout all of your life. You will see that your children receive more and indeed are receiving more than you know, which is why you might wish to amend those besetting sins which you still engage in. Children can take turns and should, even the little ones. They should read a verse at a time, a verse here or there. We're talking at most 10 to 20 verses. And in fact, if you did a reading like we had today, that would be too long. Uh, public worship is more official, a little bit longer than what we want family worship to be, what it, what it works well in doing. Additionally, other materials can be used. By this, I simply mean 
the memorization or instruction or transmission of faithful things which the church has seen are beneficial to children. Psalm 23, the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, the Nicene and and Apostles' Creed, go with apostles, it's shorter. Um, Or a catechism such as the New City Catechism, which is the catechism we use here at this church, which is a blend of the Westminster and Heidelberg Catechisms. And just so you know, the Heidelberg Catechism, if you live in Ohio, it's not talking about beer and wine. Um, that is not the sort of catechism that we are aiming for. Uh, Likewise, you don't have communion in family worship. That's a discussion for a different day. If you want to know why, uh, talk to me afterwards. But you're not not doing the Heidelberg catechism in that way. So, praying. Prayers should be short, and they should be simple, and they should be devotional, that is, faith-filled. There's a number of different helpful prayer books, which I would recommend. One of them is The Valley of Vision, which is a great book, although you can only read partially half a prayer. Uh, The Book of Common Prayer is also a good book to use, um, but get the old one, not the new one. In your prayers, you should confess family sins. If you have been letting your children run wild and everyone is picking on each other and everyone's being dishonorable to each other, you should admit and confess family sins. After admitting and confessing family sins, you should ask for and call down family blessings and family graces. God, would you bless our family with your presence? Would you cause your love to be seen as we are brothers and sisters in Christ? Would you cause our children to love you? Those are types of family graces. And also offer up family thanksgivings, especially at certain moments of time in your family's life, whether it be a birthday or a graduation, or the uh, launching of a business, or the getting of a job, or the learning how to drive. These are things that you should celebrate and offer for Thanksgiving. You should allow but not require each child to add, add to the prayer. Children who are forced to pray eventually begin to hate praying. Now, I do believe you can force singing, but I don't think that it works well to force praying. And the reason why is there's a certain level of trepidation that, that occurs when one person is praying, especially if you pray from prayer books, there will be some sort of feeling in the child that I don't know what to say, I don't know what's appropriate. Now, at the same time, you can and you ought to have your children come to you and whisper into their ear, we're going to pray this together. Why don't you repeat after me? That's a perfectly wonderful and right thing to do. In your prayers, you shouldn't be preachy. If, if someone is preachy in their prayers and they're preaching at someone, that person knows what they're talking about. Again, your children pick up more than you need. And your children need to hear your loving rebuke directly because it's not willing to shrink back. So don't be preaching in your prayers. God doesn't need your sermon. And um, it, it wouldn't be good enough anyway. So, singing, choose songs that are simple, good, and doctrinally rich. There is no excuse to sing terrible songs that have good melodies. And believe me, I've seen some terrible songs. There there are good, simple, and doctrinally pure songs that your children can learn and can can, uh, receive and sing. And they're easy to use. I would encourage you to start with simple hymns and psalms, which are very easy to sing. Jesus Loves Me is perfectly fine for a three-year-old. But by the time they're six or seven, you ought to be singing the doxology or holy, holy, holy. 
you, you are able to give your children much more than you think. And in fact, there are a whole category, although they're not very popular and they take quite a bit of searching to find, there are dozens, if not hundreds, of what are called table graces that the Reformed churches have sung throughout the last few centuries. I'm reminded of a time where in my search for these things over the last few years, I found, I was looking for an audio copy because I don't read music very well. I can, but it's, it takes me quite a while. And there's just certain things that can't be written down in the transmission of a melody. It's not possible to have all the vocal inflection. And I remember stumbling, I I now have the URL and I saved it, but Google was not helping me that day. And I remember searching for a song for 30 minutes. And when I found it, I was moved to tears at the faithfulness of God, a song that was written 300 years ago that conveyed exactly what I needed to put the mealtime at right in my home. Now, we don't sing this every time we eat, although we have done that in the past a little bit more so than now. Nevertheless, there are songs which work well and create a spirit of worship in your family. I don't think you should sing more than three. Probably two is enough. Singing's fun, and I think it should come at the end. Let's talk about some details. Where family worship should happen, probably around the dinner table, dinner table although it may be distracting for young children perhaps the living room would be better. Wherever you have family worship, you should already have and keep the things that you're going to use, whether it's a Bible, a catechism, a book of songs, you should keep those things in that place so that you're ready to do it all the time. You should turn off your phone and do not permit interruptions. If someone calls you during family worship, you do not take that phone call. Because the worship of God is more important than any human conversation. And the worship of God and the authority of God is represented by that time. Children must understand that worship is not something that can be set aside. It is of primary importance. And let me just say as a side note at this point, you can't put the emphasis on family worship if you are not also emphasizing worship once a week as the family of God comes together in the Lord's day. If you do not honor the Lord's day, you will not see your family honoring family worship, and vice versa. They are two virtues which are, go hand in hand. Situations will vary, but dinner is probably likely to be the best time. The advice that I've heard and works well for our family, although we're a very small family, um, is after dinner, before dessert, um, although that can also be bad because if, if you get into a pattern, perhaps your children will know that if we do our, fa- our worship perfectly and we you know, if everyone pays attention, then it, it, can be, it can be perverted into this whole, let's get this done with because there's a banana cream pie and I really want it. So perhaps after dessert as well. It's up to you and it's up to your family. Uh, it's up to you to decide what works, but it's important that you do it no matter what. If it doesn't work, then change things until it does. Daily consistency is better than a few long stretches one or two times a week. Daily consistency is also the pattern of life. You brush your teeth every morning. I hope you brush your teeth every morning. (laughs) You take a shower every day, or at least I hope you take a shower every day. Building into your family a pattern of family worship will create a culture that is hard to break. Habits are are very rarely set aside. Habits are very rarely set aside. Think about how hard it is to learn how to exercise or if you're a smoker to quit smoking or if you're a lazy person to be diligent. Habits are very hard to set aside. That is why it's important to build godly habits. 
Family worship should be as brief as possible, but not any more so. This is one of those statements that you really have to lean into. Family worship should be as brief as possible, but not any more so. It shouldn't be any more brief than it must be. As, in to, as, is, uh, as if to say, if it takes 25 minutes or 30 minutes, then keep it as that, but it can't take five minutes. Now, at first, you may feel like you are run out of material in the first few minutes, but you'll get the hang of it. For example, if you set aside 30 minutes in the evening, let's say we do this after dessert, right before bed, it's the, the thing that we do to close our day, then it might be looking like this, 10 minutes or so of reading scripture and teaching, perhaps with a catechism or another book, the Chronicles of Narnia, Pilgrim's Progress, various little books, of course, never setting aside the reading of scripture in favor of something else, but rather amending it and making it plain for children through perhaps Christian fiction is appropriate. Five or so minutes reading that book or a discussion you can, you can and should discuss with your children things that happened in that day, spiritual dilemmas that they faced, think issues of forgiveness that they need to work out, especially if there's fights in the homes or, or dishonor or, or some sort of sin. Of course, that won't happen in a Christian house. Five or so minutes of singing and five or so minutes of prayer. It's up to you what sort of order, but I think the word of God should come first, mostly because it's a good way to set attention. Why? And this is really coming back to the gospel purpose in family worship. Family worship is not a panacea. Panacea means a world cure or a, or a medicine for everything. It is not a panacea. It will not redeem and reflect an unruly, unrepentant temp- uh, temper. If you operate in your home with a harsh hand, a tender moment of family worship is a contradiction, and your children will see it as such. You cannot simultaneously allow sins to reign in the home and also establish family worship. Both of them need to be put right. You cannot have one without the other, or you shouldn't. Like all spiritual disciplines, family worship must be done in faith. We do not take up our Bibles to read them when we read our Bibles in order to obtain merit from God. Now, God uses the means of grace. That is true. But we do not choose which means of grace and how and to what degree he will bless them. We do them in faith knowing that he's promised to bless them. That's totally different. It's essentially the difference between operating as a slave versus operating as a son. Operating as a slave, you do what you're told and you simply receive your uh, room and board and your meal. And that's it. As a son, you work in order to receive and to benefit and bless your father. And also you receive a right inheritance from your father. This is what it means to do the, the, the means of grace in a faith-filled way. It's not magic formula. You don't, just as tithing is not, you don't tithe in order to be blessed, although it often follows tithing. It is not done in order to obtain merit from God but rather it's done to give honor and glory to God to whom it's due. One byproduct of family worship is the proper ordering of the home. I want to emphasize this is a byproduct. It is not the intended goal. It cannot be the goal that you have in mind when seeking to establish it. This is not simply a way to have less conflict in your family, although it will produce less conflict. 
it will produce a right ordering of the home because the father will take up his natural God-given call and charge and responsibility, and it will force him, by God's grace, to become a student of the word in order that he is able to teach his children. So it will help in the ordering of the home, although that is a byproduct and it is not the chief reason or the main, main motivation for family worship. Family worship being done properly is a demonstration of the lordship of Christ over every area of life. One of my chief desires in teaching and preaching is to help you understand that Christ as Lord must be honored as such in every dimension of life. This is one of the chief ways to honor the Lord Jesus as King and God in your home. It is a demonstration, especially to those who you have over for dinner or for children who come to your home to spend time with your your children. It is a demonstration to them that God is real and is important to this family. Children in, who are in family worship regularly see that they are loved by their parents and are significant to God. Why is this important? It's important because although you love your children, you do not always tell your children that you love them. But more importantly than telling your children that you love them, you need to demonstrate to your children that you love them. And one of the chief ways to do that is to include them in the thing most precious to you or the thing that you claim to be most precious to you, that is the faith. They believe that their parents love them and they see that they are significant to God. Why do they see that? Because through the reading of God's word, it will come up over and over again, God's blessings and promises to children. And in fact, if you want to begin with Deuteronomy 6, that would be a great place if you wish to do so. Simultaneously, family worship enforces the priesthood of all believers. We as Protestants hold a doctrine so precious and so dear that people have died for this. That is to say that there is not a different priesthood other than the family of God. There are not priests and lay people. There are not elders, pastors, as if, and apostles as if there's some sort of wizard class or upper echelon that cannot be attained by the rest of the family of God. No, we are brothers and sisters. Uh, I believe it's either Second Peter or First Peter. I, I forget which book, but it, the, the apostle is writing and he says, to those who have attained a faith that is in like standing to us, to the apostles. And, and the whole focus and threat of the Reformation was around this issue. This was the issue at work. It was kind of the foundational issue along with the, the word of God and the sufficiency of faith alone. It was one of the, the most important issues in the debates and in the, in the wars that were happening. It enforces the priesthood of all believers showing that all family members are responsible to worship God. Not just that the father is leading worship in the home, but that each family member must participate. You have a ministry to God, and that ministry to God is shown daily in family worship. In these times, children and family members are shown the glory of God. They see it more readily. I, I want to just impress upon you, if you think that your children must receive an education, and therefore you do it five times a week, how much more ought they to know who God is? Probably the sweetest moment in my life was after the first few hours of being a dad, you know, although we became parents nine months ago, but in the first few hours, I was reminded of the catechism, and I then began to tell Susan who God was. 
to the authority and responsibility and joy of declaring to another eternal soul that there is a God and he is known as Father, Son, and Spirit. And he made everything and everything belongs to him and all glory is due to him. That is the most precious grace that you could have. That surpasses all vocation. It surpasses all talent. It surpasses all blessing of, or honor among men. It is the greatest call that you could ever have to declare to another eternal soul who God is and what he's done in the gospel. Namely, to tell them about the forgiveness that is found in Christ is the best thing that could happen, not only to you, but also to them. In these times, in the time of family worship, children and family members are regularly shown the glory of God in the gospel. They're regularly shown it. And if we teach them through education five days a week, if we have the television in our home on every day of the week, ought it not be that we should put the things of God before our families every day in the week? They are encouraged to attend to the eternal matters of life. Your life, although we believe in sowing and reaping and taking dominion, your life does not, it's not consumed in things external to your destiny. It is primarily and chiefly an eternal thing. And children and family members are encouraged to attend to the eternal matters of life. They are regularly seen, or shown rather, about the, the serious and grave matters, which we all know, but from time to time completely ignore. Nevertheless, although all these benefits of family worship exist, although God has promised to meet fathers who present these things to their children and to, to be with those who diligently seek him and to honor those gifts and calling, nevertheless, even though all those benefits, if, if they were all taken away, it would not lessen in our duty to family worship in one aspect or regard because God is worthy of family worship. That is ultimately the reason for family worship. God is worthy to be honored in our homes. And that is what I hope to impress upon you is not only your duty, but your responsibility before God. And to see that it is a responsibility that comes with a promise. The promises that we saw in Psalm 78, that our children would not turn away that they would not forget the works of the Lord, but would walk according to his commands. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son and his great faithfulness. We thank you, Jesus, that you did, as you said in your high priestly prayer, you did declare to those who you would later call children, you declared to them the things of the Father. You made known the Father's name. We pray, Father, that you would give our families a right ordering around your word and your spirit. We pray that your grace would be multiplied in our homes, that we would, both single and married couples, both those who are old and young, those who are married and divorced, everyone within the family of God would seek to put these things into practice as much as they can. Lord, we are so thankful that you've promised time and again that you're able to redeem and restore that which was lost. We pray, God, that you would give those who feel some sense of shame or some sense of loss at hearing these things, that you would give them confidence that they can pursue you today. Lord, we ask you that you would give our, our men great confidence, that you would also give to our, our women, Lord, a, a steadfast zeal. We also pray that you would begin to set people into families and to bind up the brokenhearted and to redeem and uh, save that which is seemingly lost. 
God, we thank you for your mighty and gracious promises. We, we ask that you would look upon these things, give us zeal for them, and help, the, help us to do them in a way that's honoring to you and that's filled with faith. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.